0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: As the State Department scrambles to process thousands of special immigrant visas for Afghans trying to flee through the Kabul airport, federal contractors are playing a big role. After all, most of the Afghans who assisted U.S. forces over the years were contract employees in one way or another, and in many cases, the government needs those contractors' data to verify those employees' service. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. He joins us now to talk about how the government is working with PSC's member companies on this huge challenge. David, thanks for joining us as always. And and so, yeah, talk us through some of those discussions that your member companies are having with the government to try and speed this process up a little bit.
0: Thanks, Jared. So we started back in May. If you remember, the president's announcement was made in April and the planning for the drawdown was proceeding apace. We started in May and wrote to DOD, the State Department, and the U.S. Agency for International Development, the three agencies with the largest number of contract employees in in Afghanistan, and said, what we need, here are some issues that we're worried about, identifying the people either for special immigrant visas or for other visas under P2 program, et cetera. These are the kinds of issues that we see. Why don't we establish a forum where we can, in fact, trade information and talk with one another and move forward there? We finally have that forum established. It actually had its first couple of meetings uh, with the DOD and the State Department. The most recent one was last Friday. So there is a framework for discussion between the federal government and the trade associations that represent the companies. That's a positive step. A little bit late to the game, but nonetheless, we're taking full advantage of it. So most of our companies, most of our member companies have who have had uh, employees over there, and keep in mind, this goes all the way back to October of 2001. So, a lot of record keeping has to come into play. Three big hang-ups here. Number one is getting the forms filled out properly so you can get a visa account number, a, a system number, and get the processing started. Many people have had their applications filled out for years and they don't even have them finalized and approved yet. So we want to make sure the data get done as fast as possible. The second is we want to make sure that the reviews are done as fast as possible. And now that they're being done remotely, actually, they they started being done remotely out of uh, instead of in in the embassy in Kabul, started being done remotely, I think, back in in June. And then the third is, once a decision is made, how do you get people moved, right? And how do you protect them and keep them safe between now and then? So all of these were working with the government to try to do a better job. And with the companies, a hard thing to find out. So you could have a company, for example, said to me, we've got two people with the same name. And in Afghanistan, sometimes there are a lot of individuals with the same name and it's only one name. So, you know, specific identification gets harder. We've had some success. Legislation has reduced the requirements. For instance, it only has to be one year of employment now instead of two years of employment. And the proof of employment is a little easier to come up with. There's also the issue of subcontractors. You know, what if you worked for a subcontractor to you, you thought you were working for company X, But in reality, you're working for an Afghan uh, uh, company that in many cases is no longer in, in existence. And so all of these are issues that we're trying to work through. The main objective, though, is to identify the people, keep them safe, get them out of the country and get them into the process.
1: Identifying people is hard enough. But I guess one other thing I wonder is, is the eligibility criteria clear enough? I mean, is it is it as straightforward as if you worked on a contract in Afghanistan between 2001 and now you're eligible or is it more complicated than that?
0: It's more complicated. So there's an initial eligibility, which is 365 days of employment between October 7th, 2001 and December 31st, 2023. Well, that's more than two years out. So the last two years of that obviously don't count. Um, but that is only the first set of criteria. The second set of criteria is that you've got to be a valuable and useful employee. And there are all kinds of disqualifying uh, uh, attributes that could be part of that process. It's an open-ended question on the questionnaire you know, anything negative to report on this individual, uh, any denigrating uh, uh, commentary that you might make. And you have to fill that out without knowing what's disqualifying, right? So uh, an example could be, you may have terminated that employee because they flunked a polygraph, right? Well, that's not disqualifying from the State Department's point of view. Uh, And so you wouldn't just put, uh, uh, you know, uh, security clearance pulled, you would put why. Well, in many cases, for somebody in 2005 or 2006 or 2007, that material is no longer in the files, especially if it's a subcontractor for a company that doesn't exist. So there's multiple layers of uh, of, of uh, characteristics that have to be gone through here before you get uh, even to the point of being thoroughly reviewed, much less approved.
1: Are companies opening up their books to the government so they can access that sort of those sorts of questions directly, or is this really fall on the companies to answer those questionnaires?
0: To the extent we can, we're automating some of this with the government. And so far, this has only been with the Defense Department. We're hoping to see similar progress with the State Department and with the U.S. Agency for International Development, where the companies can input the data directly from their HR systems and the government can use that to help populate the form and certify the employment and begin moving it forward through the process. Uh, There is a heavy burden on the companies at the front end. We'd like to automate that as much as possible to get it into the government's hands and that will speed up the process also, uh, my understanding is the State Department is actually now, because there's a lot, big backlog in visas, right? Not just for Afghanistan special immigrants, but nationwide and worldwide. And so they're separating out to where there's a more dedicated capability to focus entirely on the Afghan SIV applicants. But then you've got the third country nationals that have to come in through a different visa program. Uh, you know, Many of our uh, company's employees who were in Afghanistan were third country nationals, not just Afghans, and all of them deserve Uh, our protection and our best efforts to get them out and get them to safety, if that's what they want and they qualify.
1: And David, let's pivot from one very chaotic situation to a slightly less chaotic situation, which is the government's implementation of the vaccine slash testing mandate for employees and contractors. Um, Some news on the vaccine front, which is Pfizer got getting full FDA approval yesterday. To what extent does that change things, simplified things, make things more
0: straightforward? Do we know yet? It certainly removes one uh, objection to why I don't want to get vaccinated, right? So for those who have not obtained a vaccine because they didn't want to get vaccinated with with a, a, a substance that was approved only under emergency use authorization, now it's fully licensed and so it no longer can carry that. And I think we'll see the same thing in a few weeks with the Moderna vaccine as well. My expectations is the data are moving forward along a similar process. So it removes one of the objections, but it doesn't actually change the numbers that much, at least overnight. And and so the challenge has been that the government is, is putting a test program in place or a requirement to test if you're either not vaccinated or if you decline to answer, and they're implementing it differently for federal civilian employees than they are for government contractors. They've stated for federal civilian employees that the government will pay for the testing And the requirements will be the same for all civilian employees in all agencies. For contractors, what we've seen already is some agencies have a single requirement that they've put out that applies to every contractor, every on-site contractor that is for that agency. Others are doing it one contract at a time, and still others haven't put out any guidance at all, but individual programs and activities in those agencies are putting out their own requirements. This is not so bad if you have an individual who works full-time, all the time, every day for the same contract at the same contractor at the same location. That's not the case. We have companies, I just got off the phone with one of our CEOs, more than half of his workforce works on more than one contract at a time. You could easily end up with a contractor, a contracted worker who has two or three or four or five different regimes they have to carry, uh, different forms to fill out different documents. It's chaos. And none of this achieves the real objective, which is to get more people vaccinated. PSE is arguing two things. Number one, consistent guidance across all the agencies for contractors. Number two, the government pays for the extra costs to do the, the testing regimes that, uh, that the companies will incur. There's a real challenge companies have here as well, though, which is, how many of my employees are, am I willing to put at risk? You've seen the the survey data, right? 52% of workers think that vaccines should be mandated. 30% think that vaccines should not be mandated. And if you mandate them, I'll think about going somewhere else. And the other group is if you don't mandate it, I'll think about going somewhere else. This is not a prescription for win-win, right? Especially in a tight labor market where your main difficulty is in getting the workers you need to meet the government's needs. So this has gotta be worked out to where in fact, it achieves the government's objectives but still supports the missions.
1: I just want to clarify something you said a minute ago, which is that some agencies are doing this one contract at a time. I I mean, are are they taking the position that they have to do formal contract modifications to implement
0: this? No, but what we've seen, we've had our members uh, forward to us, is an email from a contracting officer that says, for contract, and the contract number is in there, here's the requirements you have to follow. Uh, You know, the company that uh, gave me that one example, for instance, says, I've got three contracts with this one agency. This is the only contract for which I've received guidance so far. Now, by the way, my employees are working on all three of these contracts, and so I have to follow it for one. You know, and literally it says, "Fill out the form." This is the attestation form that says I have been vaccinated. You know, carry it around with you and show it to anybody who asks. Anybody who asks, Jared. Now, not everybody has the right to know the answer to that question. These are the kinds of chaotic things that have to be resolved. Uh, If we assume that the government's objective is to beat the virus, and if we assume, as I think is a valid assumption, that the vaccines are one very strong way. Now, back to your original question, the the licensure of the vaccine by the FDA, I think makes it easier to mandate than it was before. But no company wants to be the only one mandating because it puts you at a competitive disadvantage in a very tight labor marketplace. And so this is where we really need government consistency and government guidance to aim to achieving the objectives.
1: All right, David Berto, President and CEO of the Professional Services Council. Thanks as always, David.
2: All right, thank you, Jared. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral.
3: and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them.
2: Uh, I, We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your
3: life, and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but...
2: and your lessons in and, and leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your
3: book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <clears throat> um, during my assignments in Washington, DC, I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea.
2: Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WAPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants
0: As we continue to face COVID-19, we're now facing flu season. Influenza has the potential to infect millions, putting lives and the healthcare system at risk. Now more than ever, it's essential to protect yourself from influenza by getting the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is safe and effective and can't give you the flu. To protect yourself and those at highest risk, get your flu vaccine. Learn more at michigan.gov flu. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.